0: So many of you already know that this has been a year of some considerable challenge for me and my family. On the night after the first day of school this year, back in August, our house was struck by lightning in the middle of the night and caught on fire. We walked out of the house physically unharmed, and then we watched our home and just about everything in it be destroyed by fire and water and smoke. I'm grateful to say that we are at the stage of things now where the rebuilding of our house is well underway. The battles with the insurance company and acceptance of the limitations of their way of doing things and their way of covering things are behind us. Totally behind me. I don't even think about it. (laughs) Totally in the past. I'm fine. But there is a piece of this where, for real, we know now what we've lost and we can look ahead and see what the path looks like. So just about every day I drive by our house and I look to see if there are folks in there and there almost always are people working and I'll stop and I kind of sneak in and go around the inside of the house. I like to check the progress, see what's different from the day before and I like to notice things. So I like to go through and notice that, okay, now there's walls going down to the basement. It's not just an open stairwell, you know, into nowhere. I like to walk through and notice like, oh hey, there's a door on what's gonna be our closet today. There wasn't a door there yesterday. And I've been finding myself when I'm in there by myself, I'll just run my hand along the window ledges. A lot of them are still there, they're the original ones and they're cracked in some places. And I can feel them and I can start to think now, when I'm in the house, I don't just see what was, but I start to see what's becoming too. So, at least once a week, my wife and I bring our kids over to the house as well so they can see what's happening. And this past week, for the first time really, and I, I think it's because there were floors there, I think this is probably the key to it, <laughs> it was safe, right? <laughs> but we go into the house and the kids took off They ran through the rooms, you know? They were moving through the house with ease, and they were up in what'll be their bedrooms and down in the basement, and then they were tumbling out the back door into the backyard, and they were exploring, you know? They were finding all the stuff that we had left there kind of suddenly in August. And so my son was carrying over the basketball that had lived outside through the winter, and he was was like, watch this, Mom, watch me dribble this. You know? (laughs) Right on the porch, you know, hilarious. And then, you know, there they went and they found the the blue little tykes car, you know, that you ride around in that they've had since they were babies. And it was pushed up against the fence and they pulled it out and cleaned off the seat and they jammed their little bodies into it. You know, they're way too big for this car, but they jammed their bodies into it and they took turns rolling each other around the dead bumpy grass with their legs sticking out, you know, and it was amazing to watch. I felt like I was watching it happen, and I was. I was watching them lean in again, trust, maybe trust life a little bit more, maybe risk some hope. It was astounding to get to see it happen in them so visibly to me. And I was watching them because they're fascinating, but I've also been watching myself too in this process, and I know that I've been really trying hard to hold myself back to not get too excited about the possibilities of going home again, to not get too caught up in possibility because I wanna protect my heart. I wanna stay safe, I wanna be cautious. So I've been kind of tentative about leaning in. In fact, even though our builder has been telling us for months, like from the beginning of the project, when the move-in date will be, I'm like, yeah, that's not happening. That's probably not really gonna happen. Maybe two months later, right? So I'm watching myself hold back, not sure about this whole process and kind of worried, but I've been watching something else happen too. And it happens pretty much every time I go into the house and I run my hand around the window frames and I do my thing and I come out the door and if anybody is there at all, like any of the people that are working on the house or any neighbor, whether I know them or not, I find myself saying to them, it's happening. It's really happening. We're gonna come home. And sometimes I just sit in the car and I'm saying it over and over in my own head. It's happening. It's really going to happen. Now, if you haven't been through something like a big kind of sudden loss like that, this might sound weird, but, but I think part of what happens is that you start to think it's not really ever going to change. It's not really ever going to get better. The grief isn't going to lessen. The reality isn't going to change. It's always going to be like this. The turning is impossible. I think that's a place where we can fall into. And as I talked about this sermon and these experiences with other folks and friends, as I was preparing, I was reminded of the sermon Justin gave a couple of weeks ago when he talked about uh, he and his wife, Juliana, and their son, Jesse's birth. Right When he said, and I loved this line of like, despite evidence of children being born all the time, you know, we became convinced that it simply wasn't going to happen. <laughs> that there was a point in labor where it was like, nope, too much. This is not actually gonna happen for us. We're gonna be stuck right here. And I just identified with that so much because for months I've been in that stuck place not believing something else was possible, but it's starting to turn. It's starting to shift in me, and I'm starting to believe again that we will actually live in that place, that space. We'll fill it up with new things and a couple of old things, and we'll begin again, and we'll build the memories and the experiences that make a house or a building or any place into a home. I can see that that's possible now. This shift toward believing that a new beginning or a turning is possible, I can see that for me it's my turning, it's my bouncing the basketball on the porch over there. My believing that it's possible that we're gonna go home is my version of leaning in, of trusting life again, of risking hope. And part of what I've found is that it's happening almost against my will. I'm not trying for it. In fact, I've actively been trying against it because it's kind of scary to have that kind of hope. So my, my spirit is turning anyway, even as I am trying to protect myself from some imagined future pain. To me, it's as if, like the poet said, it's as if time had a different country that it wanted to show me. Right there over at the edge of the music, lingering at the end of the sermon, hinted at in the pattern of my grandmother's crochet design, a turning, a breath without pain, as if time and life were holding out its hands to me, to us every morning, saying, here, take it, it's yours. These last few weeks, I've been rereading Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking. Some of you may know this. Joan Didion is this phenomenal writer, published again and again, and. Her husband was a well-known writer as well, John Dunn. The year that Joan writes about includes some pretty difficult things that happen right next to each other. First, what happens is that her young adult daughter falls ill with a near-death experience and a long illness and a long recovery, and right at the beginning of that long illness of her young adult daughter, her husband dies suddenly of a heart attack. So it's this horrible year for her, these experiences, and the book chronicles this year of grief and confusion and disorientation that she's living within. The opening three sentences of the book read like this. She writes, life changes fast. Life changes in an instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. And in the course of her book, She shares her own experiences, the way that she thinks and what's happening, her confusion at times, and she does this really skillful moving back and forth between sharing her own experiences and her own thoughts and also sharing the research that she's done on grief and sudden loss and what that experience is like. And she notes that when people have experienced some sort of sudden loss or tragedy, when they tell their story to other people, they almost universally begin the story in the same way. It was a really ordinary day. It was a day like any other. It was a day that started just like the day before. Almost as if people are trying to communicate that sometimes what's so hard about loss is the way that it just cuts right across the everyday, the normal, the average, you don't see it coming. And I think we know this intellectually, right? Of course we know that that's how hard things happen. It's how good things happen sometimes too, suddenly in the middle of our everyday, ordinary, average days. And yet, somehow, too, when these things happen to us, we also notice and know that the world keeps on turning, keeps on spinning and demanding things of us, even when we don't feel like we have that to give. This turning that keeps... Happening, the ways that the sun keeps going up and down, the tides go in and out, life keeps moving forward, even when loss and grief have cut across a normal day for us. I've come to find that this is both a gift and a curse for the folks who are experiencing it. I'm sure that some of you know what this is like this experience of waking up the day after a loss or a big change, whether it's the death of someone you love or a diagnosis. The loss of a job or a friendship or a relationship or the way things were. For some of us, too, it's what it's like to wake up truly the day after an election that does not go the way you think it's going to. This experience of waking up and looking out the window and saying, oh my God, the sun is still coming up. Everything is still happening as if this thing didn't even happen. How is this possible? How is it possible that the lake is still there, that the wind is still blowing? I'm falling asleep and waking up when everything is different. There's a gift and a hardship in this. But I've come to believe, watching all of you and watching my own heart and my kids' hearts as well, I've come to believe that there's something in this unfathomably complex world and in our spirits and hearts and souls that absolutely knows how to do this. There's something in us that knows how to be born, that knows how to die, that knows how to live with loss and grief, and there's something in us, too, that knows how to turn, how to turn again toward life and love, how to risk hope, even when we already know the ways that people and weather can treat us. There's something in us, deep inside, that knows how to turn again. And there are times when it feels beyond us for sure, like it's not even possible that whatever that new beginning or way of living without this thing or with this difference, it can't be possible. But I've really come to believe that it is not beyond us at all. In fact, it is somewhere deep inside of us. It is deep within us, this knowing how to turn towards life. And I know that it is hard to carry that sometimes for ourselves. Sometimes we can't, in fact, believe that we know how to turn or that anything is going to be different. And for me, and I've seen it for you too, this is when we look to each other. We look to each other to hold faith, to hold the sense of possibility, to remind each other where we are in the struggle and in the, in the possibility and to say to one another, you can do this. It feels like you can't, but you can do this. You are doing this. We are doing this. I know that when I struggle, and whether it's personal struggles, like the challenges of this year, or it's the political landscape that we're in right now, where every day feels like it could be one more loss, where it's one more challenge to stand for, to fight for change with, that I find myself not just looking to my own heart, but looking around as well, to each of you, but also looking back into history, looking to our ancestors. I need to be reminded that this turning has happened for generations. It doesn't belong only to me and to us, but it's been going on for years and years. One of the places I've found myself going to over the last few months is the theology of James Cone. James Cone is an African-American theologian who grew up in the 40s and 50s in Bearden, Arkansas. He grew up in the Jim Crow era. And when he talks about his life experience, he talks about what it's like to grow up attending segregated schools, to drink from colored water fountains, to watch movies from the balcony when that's not where he wanted to be, the way that he moved through his town, avoiding the white people who were there, telling him he and his family were inferior to them. So he grew up in that environment, but he also grew up in the church. He grew up in the Macedonia AME Church, to be specific, and he says in his writing that he breathed in there a faith that was so powerful, so powerful that it was an antidote to the rest of the environment that he was living within, an antidote against the belief that blacks were less than whites. And this faith, he said, taught him over and over that God created all people equal as siblings in church and society, that no one is better or worse than anyone else. James Cohn went on to study theology in a largely white environment, and so he had that coming in, that influence, but also during that time, he was listening to and experiencing Martin Luther King Jr. and his theology washing over the nation. He was experiencing what it was like to hear King preach a universalist Christianity oriented in love, defined by hope, and committed to social justice. He watched as King talked again and let people experience through watching his actions the disconnect, the total disconnect between what was being preached on Sunday morning in most churches and then what was happening in the afternoon. Cohn watched as King brought the dream of justice, the dream of an embodied universalism where each and every person is treated as equal with dignity and respect, while King brought that right into the living rooms of America. James Cone lived within all of this, with all of it washing over him, breathing it in, imbibing it, as he said, and it ended up fueling his writing and his teaching and the creation of a new theology, of black liberation theology, which is grounded in both universalism and the very particular lived experience of what it means to be black in America. In one of his essays, Cone writes this, and this is the quote I want us to have together and work on together a little bit. So these are his words, he says, We have a dream that has not been realized. We have a dream that has not been realized. To be sure, we have talked and written about this dream. Indeed, every Sunday morning, black people gather in our churches to find out where we are in relation to the actualization of the dream, to find out where we are in relation to the actualization of our dream. The black church community believes that where there is no vision, the people perish. If people have no dreams, they will accept the world as it is and will not seek to change it. To dream is to know what is ain't supposed to be. And that's the end of the quote. These are the words I've been hanging on to over the last few weeks. If there is no vision, the people perish. If people have no dreams, they will accept the world as it is and will not seek to change it. To dream is to know that what is ain't supposed to be. These are those words. I think we come to church to dream. I think we come to church to remember. And this is why I'm hanging on to these words so much. We come to church, we come together, we meet with each other in small groups, we have intimate conversations to remember what the dream is and to see where we are in relationship to actualizing it. This true dream of a wide-open welcome, of everyone treated with dignity and respect, of basic human rights for all, of opportunities for each of us. This is the dream. This is one of the big dreams, and we are still so far from the actualization of it. So we come here together to remember what the dream is because it can be too hard to hold on to it all by ourselves. There are days we need one another to carry it for us. We come here to remember this dream and this possibility of turning that exists within each of us, within our community and our world. This turning back toward life and hope and risk that we know how to do deep in our bones. We know this turning. At the end of Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking, At the end of this year of grief and adjustment and living with the distortions that grief can bring, she tells us she doesn't really want to finish writing the book. She's resisting, you know, wrapping it up and closing it down. She's worried that as she ends the year, it'll become further from the time her husband was alive, and she's worried that he's going to vanish if she doesn't carry this with her all the time. She writes about this experience that she has when she's out walking one day, where she said it kind of comes to her, this apprehension, these are her words, the apprehension that our life together will decreasingly be the center of my every day. It seemed today on Lexington Avenue so distinct a betrayal that I lost all sense of oncoming traffic. This idea that him and her grief will decreasingly be the center of her life, it disoriented her so much. As she's trying to end this book, you can feel the pain coming through the pages of the book, the the way that grief works in a person. And yet somehow there she turns. Somehow in those last few pages, she remembers the faith of her husband, of John Donne. She remembers how he actually was never afraid of change, how he was the one that pushed them into it, who pushed them into life again and again, how he wasn't afraid in that way. She remembers being out swimming with him one afternoon and him telling her, you have to feel the swell of the water. You have to feel the swell of the change and then you have to go with it. That's what you do. You have to go with the change. And so you get to watch her in these final pages of the book. You get to watch her turn as the year turns, the sentences end, the page turns. You get to see her make that internal shift I trust that that is there for each of us, that each of our hearts can turn to. We know how to do this. It takes more than time. Time is one piece, but it is not all of it and it is not enough. It takes the movement of the air, the rising and the setting of the sun, the suffering that we survive, the edge of the music, the lingering space there at the end of the sermon, the pattern in the crochet design of our grandmothers. It takes the heat and the stink and the stirring of the compost heap sometimes. It takes surrender to the beating of our heart and the workings of our soul that no, it is not beyond us to to make this turn. It is not beyond us to make this turn. It is within us, each and every one of us. So let this church be a place where we remember together. Let it be a place where we remember the possibility of turning for each of us and for our world. Let it be a place where we remember the dream and let us see where we are in relation to actualizing it, that we might know our part in the work that is ahead. Let us remember here, let us renew and recharge, remember and believe in the possibility of the turning. May it be so. Amen.